1: Well, hello there and welcome to the Disciples of Liberty Show. I'm Brian Hyde filling in for Tim Alders here on the America Out Loud Network. I got some great stuff to share with you today. Oh, I'm going to tell you, we're going to talk about hate. I know, that's a very broad term and actually that's a term the left likes to throw around a lot. It's, it's what uh, Joe Sobran used to refer to as the, un, the unspecified predicate. Meaning, you accuse somebody of hate, you don't have to explain exactly what they did. Everybody just instinctively knows that must be bad. And they make their own emotional associations as to what that must mean. But specifically, I'm going to share with you an article from Barry Brownstein, explaining how totalitarians promote hatred over differences as a tool to keep us divided. So that's one of the issues. I, I've got another, this, this word is going to scare some people, but Secession with all the kinds of political and cultural divisions we're seeing right now, um, I don't think we're going to see them rectified through voting. Jeff Deist recently gave a speech to a gathering in Turkey about the prospects for soft secession in America. And hopefully I'm going to take some of the fear out of that word secession, even down to the level where you might think, you know what, I'm going to secede personally, meaning I'm going to separate myself from my government as much as possible. No, you can't do it perfectly, but you can, you can still do a lot. And I'm going to start though with something that I hope has some applicability. And that is, uh, I want to share with you some thoughts from the great Paul Rosenberg on how thrift used to be one of the core values of a free and self-reliant people. But somehow it's been strangled out of existence. And he answers the question, why is it so hard to save money? I think this one is, is worth starting out on because it's, it's, a very important principle that a lot of people are unfortunately finding out and have been finding out over the last, you know, 18, 19 months or so. When governments at uh, the local, federal, you know, national level started locking down their economies, telling people you're essential, you're not, making businesses close down, preventing people from going to work, preventing, preventing people from engaging in commerce, we saw a lot of financial hardship, a lot of businesses failed. And, of course, uh, they tried to soften the blow, those in power, by, well, here, we'll cut you a check. Hey, we'll cut you a bigger check. You know, let us throw some money at you. Now, shut up and go away, kid. You know, we're we're trying to make plans here. We're remaking the whole world. I feel bad for the people right now who find themselves in the position where they have to choose between getting a vaccination shot they do not want for whatever reason. I don't care what the reason is. It's still their call. They still have the uh, the self determination to make that decision for themselves, but if they don't get it, there's there're millions of people, hundreds of millions of people who find themselves in the position of losing their job potentially. And I think the craziest thing of all is a lot of these people include healthcare workers who are being lauded as heroes over the last year and a half because they were putting in tireless hours treating people in the COVID units, you know, working to to make things work during this pandemic. All of which they did, you know, at least up until recently, unvaccinated. But their refusal to take the shot? Hmm, that's, that's very upsetting to whoever it is that, that is, is pulling the strings and trying to get everybody possible to get the injection. So, yeah, financial difficulty could be coming on a lot of people, even more so than it has in the last year and a half. It's a scary thought, but let's talk about why it's so hard to save money. Paul Rosenberg writes, thrift is far more important than is commonly understood. And he says, I'll explain that in a future column, but first we need to dispel the guilt many of us feel about the topic. He says there's actually a very good reason why it's so hard to save money nowadays. Now, I like the fact he zeroed in on the guilt. Because I think most of us have felt this at some point. And he describes, here's here's the the kind of guilt that people are feeling. He says, I think most of my readers will recognize the feeling I'm referring to. You read great books on success like The Richest Man in Babylon. You understand that saving at least 10% of your paycheck is necessary for success. And you go out to do it. But obstacles keep getting in your way. Then you feel bad. You feel that you failed. You don't really want to think about thrift anymore. He says, I'm here to tell you that you were far too hard on yourself. It wasn't your fault. Okay, if you were out knocking back brews at a bar four times a week, that was your fault. But he says, I don't think many readers fall into that category. Thrift has been systematically strangled over the past century. It's just now, it's now just barely possible, he says. You've been blaming yourself for the sins of others. And remember, most of those success books were written before Thrift was dead. So the simple reason it's so hard to save money in today's world, first of all, it requires just a little bit of historical perspective. When analyzing the economics of civilizations, he says the big question is this, where does the surplus go? In Greece, for example, surplus was generated by the labor of slaves and went to the citizen or property owner, who tended to be a very good judge of where and how to use it best. In Western civilizations, surplus was generally left in the hands of the person who earned it, who also tended to be a good judge of how to best use it. Through the past 100 years of a declining Western civilization, though, he says the movement of surplus was radically transformed to where our surplus was skimmed away in thicker and thicker layers to growing governments in capital cities. And the result of this is the current situation. Essentially, all surplus is skimmed away from the producer, and this is accomplished with direct taxes, Things like income taxes, as well as the hidden tax of inflation, real estate taxes, sales taxes, and dozens of others. On your phone bill, your electric bill, gasoline, liquor, etc. In other words, it's hard to save money because the government takes so much of it away. And we're so used to this situation that we fail to remember that it was not always so. This is why we feel guilty about not being able to save money. And we shouldn't. Because he reminds us, a large army of state employees work every day to remove our surplus from our hands. Aside from acting especially stupidly, it really isn't our fault. Now he asks you to think back to how it was in 1890. Paul Rosenberg says, if you're like most of us, you had great grandparents that worked hard, saved their money, and improved their situation in life. It was normal to do so in the later 19th century, even until the First World War. Great grandfather got ahead. You work now. You work just as hard, but you don't make much progress. And there's a reason for this. When great gramps worked hard, he kept the money. That's that's because in great grandpa's day there was no income tax and no sales tax. And believe it or not, the government survived anyway. There was no social security tax either, and the streets were never full of starving old people. Families were able to take care of their own. But see, we've forgotten. That it was once possible for an average person to accumulate money. Mechanics, carpenters, shop owners, and people like them filled their bank accounts with gold and silver. It was common for people like bakers and carriage builders to make serious business loans and to retire comfortably, living off their investments. Now, in those days before mass taxation and fiat currency, young men would go out to make their fortune. And by this he means, fortune didn't mean multiple billions, it meant enough capital for the rest of your life. Young men would go where money was being made, they would work hard, cooperate with similar young men, learn everything they could from older men, save, invest, learn how to succeed, then return home as a prosperous adult. Now not every young man went out to build a fortune, and some certainly failed. But these activities were not punished at the time which made them much easier than they are today. Gathering a fortune was common enough that it was built into the mating strategy of that time. Many women would agree to marriage only after the young man had made something of himself. And this mating strategy was legislated out of existence, which is too bad, because it was generally a far healthier strategy than what developed in its wake. In fact, in the article he includes a graph depicting the difference between you and your great-grandfather. The top line of this graph, which is showing the years of living expenses that you're capable of putting away versus how many years it took to to put away those living expenses. So the top line shows how many years of living expenses your great-grandfather would have accumulated as a hardworking young man. The bottom line of the graph shows what you can save. It's very telling. After working for five years, great-gramps had seven years of living expenses in the bank doing the same things, you would have less than two. See, in the modern world, everyone's fortune is taxed away as it is being formed, and what is saved is being eroded by the creation of currency, which you may recognize as inflation. Very few of us ever get beyond escape velocity to accumulate money. In other words, we work all our lives just to stay more or less even. And with surplus removed from individuals, All investment capital is forced through institutions. Money isn't saved, it's obtained from banks. Finance has been centralized and removed from the hands of individuals. In the 17th century, productive people made loans. In the 20th century, their children shuffled into banks and begged for loans. So he says, Grandpa wasn't really better than you. But the worst part of this was the mass demoralization. People began to feel morally weak which generally happened in the name of compassion. Here's how the trick worked. Your money is taken from you before it can accumulate, leaving you with barely enough to live a reasonable life. You have nothing left to help those who suffer unjustly, not because you don't work, but because your surplus is continuously skimmed skimmed away. And number three, politicians imply that you are a bad person for not wanting to help the poor. So not only do the cultural elite make it almost impossible for you to give, but they insult you for it. Then, of course, they spend the money they skimmed from you on armies of government employees who deliver a small fraction of your money to the poor. So here's the big difference between our time and great-grandpa's time. Paul Rosenberg says your great-grandparents were proud To help their friends and neighbors. They felt good about themselves. They felt compassion for others. They were proud to make the world a better place. And he concludes being robbed of this heritage was far worse than the loss of the surplus. So the question of why money is so hard to save has just been answered here. Now, if only the steps from here were so simple. I mean, I'm, I'm going to suggest, and this is something you can feel free to reject because it's worth exactly what you paid for it. This might be a really wise time to start looking at some kind of a gig economy side hustle. Maybe it becomes your full-time job. But it's time to think more entrepreneurially. Discover a way that you can create value for the people around you. I don't care if it's big or if it's small. It's, you know, I'm not talking about, hey, start one of those envelope stuffing businesses and you know encouraging everybody to send you five bucks to learn how to stuff envelopes envelopes. No. I'm just saying there's something you could do from your home that could work very well in terms of providing income. I don't know what that is. I don't know what your interests are, your talents or your skills but I'm quite confident you could make something of value and basically turn a portion of your home or a portion of your time into a little factory of sorts. I mean, some people make keychains, right? Some people, you know, have woodworking skills. Some people bake. Some people keep bees. Let me put a little interesting slant on this just to, to kind of put some skin on the idea of, you know, you can... Keep more of your surplus, I have a friend who keeps bees. He is a very dedicated apiary and knows a lot about uh, you know keeping the bees, keeping them happy and and of course getting great honey, which he then turns around and markets each season, puts it into little tiny jars as well as bigger jars. Um, I don't know how much he does, but it's a lot. And he's got the whole honey separator that spins it out and whatnot. Fascinating stuff. But here's the kicker. This is what I think is absolutely brilliant about his approach. Yes, he could just set up a little sign on the street corner like a lemonade stand. Honey for sale. He could take out a classified ad on Facebook neighborhood or whatever. Maybe he does, but here's the thing. He doesn't ask for cash. Cash. See, I would immediately default to, yeah, just uh, give me some cash. You know, that way, you know, government's not trying to take their cut of it. Although you are supposed to declare your income. And, you know, as a good global citizen, I would declare every penny just because I'm a good global citizen. All right. Butt covered. Moving on. What he does, though, is he barters. He will tell people, I am happy to let you have some of this, honey, but I want you to bring me something else of value. Not cash. Not cash. And let's barter for it. Now, you can imagine that that brings some really interesting possibilities into play. Maybe his kid is taking piano lessons. And he wants, you know, someone to teach his his child piano. That's an option. Okay, well, I'd like, uh, you know, 10 pounds of honey. How many uh, piano lessons would that equal out to? They'll sit down and hash out, you know, what the value would be. Fine, let's do that. Take 10 pounds of honey. You're going to be teaching my kid piano for the next six months or whatever. That's the kind of entrepreneurial thinking that we have got to be willing to embrace. If we're going to survive the push to get everybody in the same corner, you know, everybody vaccinated, everybody, you know, using this form of digital currency, assuming that the dollar may crash at some point. One thing's for sure. When you see a digital currency trotted out as the only way in which a person can do business, there are a couple of things that are very important to government about that digital currency. Number one, it knows every dime that comes or goes in your life. Why? Because it's digital. It doesn't exist in real life. It's not something you put your hands on. There's an electronic trail showing someone transferred this value to you. Now you transferred it to somebody else and government will be there every step of the way to tax and to skim more of that surplus away from you. So there's one option, and it's not a very pleasant one, but basically every dime you make, every purchase you make will be known, will be taxed, will be documented, may be regulated. It's kind of a, a little bit of a spooky thought. But here's the scarier thought, and I'm not trying to to make you panic or go run on the bank or anything. The idea, though, that uh, that your Ability to engage in commerce is going to depend on some sort of government oversight, whether it's keeping track of what commerce you're taking part in or whether it's just simply, uh, you know, adding a social credit score like China has done to their economic system. Maybe you don't get the chance to get out there and and participate in society because Well, let's just say, for instance, maybe you weren't being a good global citizen. Maybe you weren't as obedient as the people pulling the strings would like you to be. I mean, that would be a shame, wouldn't it? But, of course, under a truly digital currency, you might just be on the receiving end of a kind of electronic fascism in which if uh, you're naughty, if you're perceived as one of the problem children, well, you just don't get to buy groceries. You don't get to gas up your car. Good luck with that. Open up a checking account? Nope, not going to happen. You can see where this could lead to all kinds of mischief as well as all kinds of control. And I've said nothing about you know the possibility that, uh, hey, isn't there something in the Bible about the mark of the beast and everybody has to have it if they want to buy or sell or eat? I know, and I, I, I'm not going around spending my days looking for the mark of the beast, but I think the people who are scoffing you know, it, uh, it, uh, vaccines and people going, you know, maybe this is the biblical mark of the beast. If you were scoffing at it two months ago, I'm going to ask you in all seriousness. Does it look quite as humorous today as it did two months ago? I'm not saying that uh, the vaccine, by the way, is the mark of the beast or vaccine passports for that matter. But I will say, if they're not, they're missing a pretty good opportunity. Okay, I'll leave it at that. Let's, uh, let's shift gears here a little bit. I want to talk about the prospect for soft secession in America. And that word secession is going to set a lot of people into a really uncomfortable state just because we've been told, well, the only reason somebody would do that is to preserve slavery or because they're racist or they're nationalist or something like that. It's uh, Secession is the act of, of peacefully separating from another person or another entity. It happens in divorces. It can be done peaceably. But when there comes a point where there's irreconcilable differences, and I, I think we're fast approaching that point, would that not be better or more desirable than the idea of, nope, we're going to have to fight this out. This is going to come to bloodshed because I can't let you go, babe. Try and leave me. See what happens. Don't be a f- don't be fearful of secession. And if I can put your, your mind at ease, Maybe this will help. If you celebrate July 4th, if you celebrate Independence Day, you're already celebrating secession because that's exactly what the colonists were doing. seceding from the mother country, telling England, thank you. We'll take it from here. We will govern ourselves. We don't need you to govern us. I think one of the coolest things is you can start at the personal level. Now look, you're not going to perfectly escape and find you know, this perfect little bubble of freedom in a, in a really unfree world. You're still going to have some brushes with, you know, civilization with government at some level, county or local. It's going to happen. But don't let that get you down. Don't let that don't let that distract you from the idea that you can and should, wherever possible, especially where culturally things are are uh, foreign or just. Um, distasteful to what you believe to be true or what you hold sacred yeah by all means a person could secede homeschooling is an act of secession how it's people taking their kids out of the public school system taking the responsibility peacefully going their own way and educating their child under different circumstances circumstances that are more favorable to the parents choosing and more reflective of the kind of values that they would like to see instilled in their kids I've got an article here from Jeff Deist. This is actually a speech that he gave in Turkey recently at the Property and Freedom Society Conference. And Jeff Deist from the Mises Institute says, in 1930, Columbia professor Carl Llewellyn published The Bramble Bush. The Bramble Bush, rather. It's a famous tract on how to think about and study law. Now, Llewellyn urged his readers to both consider law and custom when seeking to understand a society, to recognize the difference between the black-letter legal codes and the day-to-day practices of state officials and citizens. Where there was no sanction, the author instructed, there was no law. In other words, we should focus on the substance of things at least as much as we focus on the form. And that's an important lesson for how we view the United States today, with an eye toward what's actually happening on the ground among people in institutions rather than legal formalisms. He says, a few years ago, on a panel discussion at an event in Vienna, Dr. Hans-Hermann Hoppe made an offhand remark that I found very interesting. Paraphrasing him, he said that nationalist movements in the 19th and 20th centuries were largely centralizing, while the nationalist movements of the 21st century were largely decentralist in nature. Now, he's talking about breakaway movements like Brexit or in Taiwan or Scotland or Catalonia and others. Donald Trump also represented a breakaway movement of sorts away from D.C., but, of course, that uh, possibility went totally unfulfilled. Now, Jeff Deist says, what strikes me as an important insight is that what we know of today's map of Europe is really, Europe really consists of countries cobbled together from principalities, city-states, kingdoms, dukedoms, And as the EU seeks, but has not achieved total dominion over them as a supranational government. Well, he says what we really think of as as the U.S. is in actuality an incredibly disparate set of regions, which became 50 states over which the U.S. federal government asserts almost total control. But in both cases, cities became politically, economically and culturally dominant. So. Jeff Deist says, our topic today, the context of the U.S., is this. What if the greatest political trend of the past 200 years, namely the centralization of state power, reverses in the the 21st century? And what if this century is not about ideology, but about separation and location? And what if COVID has dramatically laid bare this possibility? Okay, this is where I'm going to pump the brakes because we are up against the break here. But uh, what do you think? Soft secession? Is it a possibility? Jeff Deist makes a pretty convincing case that yes, it is. We'll get to that just the other side of our break. I'm Brian Hyde filling in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty Show on the America Out Loud Network.
0: Now never before in our history have we witnessed the level of hatred that is now being waged against our law enforcement. While anarchist groups create havoc and overwhelm our first responders, these same groups and their corporate supporters are calling for the police forces to be shrunk and defunded. What can you and I do to make a difference? How can we stand up for what is right and to show our support? That's what I'm going to tell you about this incredible new platform. It's called ShopToTheRight.com. It's a new shopping platform that will help you find businesses that align with your values. They feature products made in America. They support veteran-owned businesses as well as our law enforcement community. This is a time when we need to stick together. We need to shop together and we need to support each other. It's time... For you and I to make some noise and stand up to protect our country. And one easy way to do that is to shop and give our money to companies that don't seek to destroy our way of life. So join the fight for liberty. ShopToTheRight.com. Support those American businesses that support law enforcement and veterans.
2: In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only eight seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off.
1: AmericaOutloud.com is the alternative from the agenda-driven globalist. Here, we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. On-demand podcast or real-time talk radio with our streaming apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa.
0: America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all.
1: Welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty Show. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders here on the America Out Loud Network. And I appreciate you tuning in today. Talking a little bit about soft secession versus hard secession. This is from a speech given by Jeff Deist recently at a conference in Turkey. And he has some really great points to consider. One of them is that empires desperately fear losing control over their provinces. And that appears to be exactly what's happening in the U.S., now, those of us on the anti-interventionist right sometimes forget that D.C. is very much an imperial power with respect to the 50 states, not just in the Middle East. So any discussion of soft secession and its prospects in the U.S. starts with identifying domestic pushback against this empire. And contra the self-styled progressive saviors, any political arrangement which denies people the, walk, the ability to, or the right to walk away peaceably, is not liberal by definition. Now from here he gets into a couple of, uh, of timely definitions. What do we mean by soft secession versus hard secession? It's something more than just de facto versus de jure. Lawyers will know what we're talking about here. Because everything about America's laws and political norms already became blurred over the past century. De facto violations of constitutional provisions, for example, become de jure over time, by operation of federal regulations or the terrible Supreme Court. Garay Garrett's 1944 essay, The Revolution Was, explains this as a revolution within the form. Everything ostensibly remained the same, a constitution, 50 states, three branches of government. But he says the country was overthrown 100 years ago, beginning with Woodrow Wilson and reaching full form in FDR's New Deal. But America's second revolution was managerial. That is a seizing of jurisdiction over every aspect of life by a centralized federal bureaucracy. Now, I just have to ask you as, as an aside here. Think about the mandates that Biden has been handing down and, and pushing ever since he took office back in January. Is there any aspect of your life, any area of your life that is considered so sacred Government would not dare intrude, much less come in and tell you this is what you have to do. I've asked a number of people this question, and frankly, nobody has been able to identify anything, you know, that that seems off limits. I mean, matters of conscience, yeah, to a point. But even then, government, uh, you know, holds that sort of Damocles. It's dangling over the heads of churches, you know, and, and, you know, be careful that private conscience could cost you if you if you're not careful. So, by soft secession, what what he's talking about here is a counter-revolution within the form, meaning aggressive federalism, keeping the government the federal government limited to its enumerated powers in the constitution, also regionalism, localism, and an aggressive subsidiarity principle operating in de facto opposition to the federal state or at least sidestepping it. So let's put this into some plain English. In other words, sometimes it could take the form of direct nullification or even flouting of federal edicts, which it turns out are pretty hard to enforce without the support of the local populations. Biden's vaccine mandates will be an instructive test of this. Several governors have already filed suits. Or it could take the form of legal gray areas, as we've seen with more liberal U.S. states, in their approach to immigration sanctuaries as well as marijuana laws. Soft secession also sidesteps the thorniest issues. Like, well, what do we do about federal land or federal entitlements or debt, the dollar, military bases and personnel, nuclear weapons? So it's it's working within the system, but it's also... It means the states have to rise up and assert states' rights as well as states' powers over the federal government. Kind of a Magna Carta moment, if you will, but I don't see that coming anytime soon. Hard secession, by contrast, Jeff Deist says, means an outright division of the U.S. into two or more new political entities. Complete with their own boundaries and governments in a surviving rump state. Now, this is far more difficult. He says, among other obstacles, there's a Reconstruction-era Supreme Court case which claims the various states must agree to let a particular state secede. I believe that's the crabs-in-a-bucket decision. At least that's what it should be called. But the possibility remains in this scenario could be reasonably peaceful or it could be quite violent. It could look like the former Soviet Union and the Baltics or it could look like the former Yugoslavia. But this is far less likely absent an outright economic collapse. Yet that's just it. He says we need to understand that America is less a country than an economic arrangement. Now it's an arrangement about land and jobs and capital. And subsidies about, uh, about subsidies like Social Security and Medicare. About cheap imports. A good distribution system. And a strong U.S. dollar relative to other currencies. Calvin Coolidge said the chief business of the American people is business. and That's not all bad, and it's far better than nothing. But it's held together as an increasingly shaky political arrangement. America, as a place, has lost its sense of meaning or shared commonalities. And Jeff Deist says, I don't know how long this economic arrangement can or will last, but the point is, if it fails, there is no social or cultural arrangement underpinning it. So what are the prospects for soft secession in the U.S.? It's impossible to give odds, but surely the possibility is far higher than at any time in recent U.S. history. He says the prospects are higher now than two weeks ago, before Biden announced his uh, vaccine mandates. They're higher now than when Biden was elected, despite his promises of bringing the country together. They're far higher now than before COVID, as vaccines, masks, masks, Lockdowns and travel restrictions have divided the American public in in remarkable new ways over the past year and a half. They are higher now than when Trump was elected in a brutally divisive election. Higher now than after the Bush versus Gore debacle in 2000 created the idea of red versus blue state. And they're higher now than in the turbulent 60s and 70s when civil rights, feminism, Roe v. Wade, birth control and radical social change roiled the country. In fact, he says those prospects are probably the highest they've been since the terrible 1860s. But here's the silver lining. He says, COVID has given us a great gift, and that is the gift of clarity. Over 18 months, we have learned that all crises are local. For 18 months, it's mattered very much whether you live in Florida or New York, whether you live in Sweden or Australia. And the physical analog world reasserted itself with a vengeance. No matter where you are, no matter how rich you may be, you must exist in corporeal reality. You need housing, food, clean water, clean or energy rather, clean energy. Listen to me; I sound like AOC. Uh, You need clean water, energy, and medical care in the most physical sense. You need last-mile delivery. No matter what is happening in the broader world, your local situation suddenly mattered quite a bit in 2020. Because that was the year that localism reasserted itself. Now, whether your local reality was dysfunctional or it didn't matter quite a bit in the terrible COVID year, he says people are waking up to the reality of this dysfunction. We know the federal government can't manage COVID, it can't manage Afghanistan, it can't manage debt or the dollar or spending or entitlements, it can't even run federal elections. He says, for God's sake, must let, much less provide security or justice or social cohesion. So how can it manage a country of 330 million people? How can it manage 50 states? Whether we want to call it the Great Awakening or the Great Realignment, something profound is happening. Imagine if the 21st century reverses the dominant trend of the 19th and 20th centuries namely the centralization of political power in national and even supranational governments. What if we are about to embark on an experiment in localism and regionalism, simply due to the sheer inability of modern national governments to manage day-to-day reality? Jeff Deist says a sort of centrifugal force is at work here. Here in the U.S., people are self-segregating, both ideologically and geographically. This is part and parcel of any soft secession. Moving is the best, most direct sorting mechanism we could possibly hope for. A recent survey by United Van Lines confirms what we already knew. People are fleeing California, New York, New Jersey, and Illinois for Texas, Idaho, Florida, and Tennessee. This is simple flight from the dysfunction of big cities and unworkable progressive policies, laid bare by the analog lessons of COVID. And Jeff Deist says we should cheer this. If just 10% of the Americans were to hold reasonable views on politics, economics, and culture, that would still constitute 33 million people. And we could coalesce as a significant political force. And this nation within a nation would be larger and more economically powerful than many European countries. Furthermore, he points out that we're witnessing a tremendous shift in political power away from cities, toward exurbs, and and rural areas. So there really is nothing like it in U.S. history. America started in colonies and villages before moving westward to farms and ranches. When factories began to replace farms as major employers, Americans moved to the Rust Belt cities like Chicago and Pittsburgh and Detroit. When tech and finance began to overshadow manufacturing, Americans moved to Manhattan and Seattle and Silicon Valley for the best jobs. But that revolution in finance and tech means capital is more mobile than ever. And COVID accelerated our ability to work from home. All of this could have huge beneficial effects for smaller cities and rural areas, which in turn could have profound effects for the congressional map and electoral college. He says if the angry school board meetings across U.S. towns over masks are any indication, politics has already become more localized. COVID policies ruin cities, at least for a while, and the great sort will reduce the political and economic power of those cities. In other words, a -a once-in-a-generation opportunity is before us. And Jeff Deist says, So we should cheer when Americans lose faith in it, due to Trump or COVID or Afghanistan or public opinion polls which show a deeply divided and skeptical country. Contra our political elites, COVID and the disastrous reaction by governments may end up reducing their power and standing in society. Now, as the great sort proceeds, and he says, and I certainly hope it does, several questions present themselves. Is this trend toward soft secession necessarily illiberal? Does it require some new form of nationalism, which the modern West considers always and ever a bad thing? Is the potential for creating more states or political subdivisions, even if smaller and less sclerotic, moving us further from an idealized Hoppian private community model? He says the short answer to these questions, all of these questions, is no. And the long answer is that even illiberal or nativist or aggressive nationalist movements are far less. Because Western imperialism and colonialism did not end in the 20th century. It just changed form. Political centralization, despite the false advertising, has not been a liberalizing force in the world, but rather a force for the West, particularly the U.S., to impose hegemony under the guise of freedom. Centralization has always worked in favor of Western interests, never against. Now, Ludwig von Mises had a lot to say about all this, especially in nation, state and economy and liberalism. Jeff Deist says, in my strong opinion, both books are deeply misunderstood, sometimes purposely so by Mises' admirers. They are radically decentralist and secessionist in their main thrust, not universalist as is often claimed. Coming out of the polyglot patchwork of the 1800s Europe, Mises was very concerned about the plight of political minorities in a society, whether that was due to language or ethnicity or simply smaller voting numbers in a political entity. He elevated self-determination, the right to walk peacefully away from a political arrangement, to the level of a central principle of liberalism. He also said, The whole program of liberalism could be condensed into a single word, property, an inconvenient fact for the egalitarian zeitgeisters. Contra some of his champions, Mises' strong antipathy for economic or military nationalism did not make him an opponent of the nation-state. On the contrary, Dr. Joe Salerno has written about Mises' liberal nationalism or peaceful nationalism. This is a program of laissez-faire at home and free trade abroad to prevent the tendency towards autarky and outward expansion. He even went so far as to say nationalism does not clash with cosmopolitanism, for the unified nation does not want discord with neighboring peoples, but peace and friendship. So Mises' liberalism is rooted in the 19th century conception not the 20th. Its two political principles were the right of self-determination, which Mies has granted down to individuals in theory and national unity. He affirms the idea of nations as organic entities supported by shared affinities, independent of political entities and often arbitrary state borders. So in his mind, Italians, Greeks, Poles, Germans, and Serbians all deserved independence from despotic rule. The question today is whether Trumpists in Alabama or Catalans in Barcelona have the same right. Now, to be fair, Nation, State and Economy and the book Liberalism both contain passages which might might give us pause today, given the benefit of a century of hindsight. Mises praises democracy as self-government, self-rule and says the laws can be repealed or amended. Office holders can be removed if the majority of citizens so wish. That is the essence of democracy. That is why the citizens in a democracy feel free. And he doubled down on this in the 1940s in some passages in Human Action, arguing that democracy allows for the peaceful transfer of political power, which has been mostly true in the West. Now, his faith in democracy might sound quaint today, but again, we have a hundred years of hindsight. Mises may not have been able to imagine how mass democracy in large countries would become a weaponized veneer of legitimacy for every imaginable intervention. And in fact, democracy is preferable to outright violence and war for political power in almost every case. Now, Jeff Deist says Mises also created what I argue is an unfortunate confusion over cosmopolitanism in this passage in liberalism. Quote, liberal thinking always has the whole of humanity in view, And not just parts. It does not stop at limited groups. It does not stop at the border of the village, of the province, of the nation, or the continent. Its thinking is cosmopolitan and ecumenical. It takes in all men and the whole world. Liberalism is, in this sense, humanism. And the liberal, a citizen of the world, a cosmopolite. But this is not an argument for for international or one-world government. Certainly not one taken in the radically decentralist context of the book. Mises, Lou Rockwell reminds us, could take a train from Vienna to London in pre-war years without ever showing anyone a passport. Yet he was nothing if not a proud wiener. By cosmopolitan, Mises means simply not provincial. He means having an interest in and concern for the broader world beyond one's own town life, one town or life or immediate concerns cosmopolitanism doesn't mean adopting a universalist left cultural worldview to be imposed everywhere. That's not what it means at all. And today, it is precisely Western elites who personify provincialism in the sense that they cannot conceive of a life or worldview unlike their own. This is why they insist on one set of top-down rules for New York and Texas and Florida and Afghanistan. And that insistence on that every polity on earth ought to be trending inexorably toward your preferred political arrangement, Jeff Deist says strikes him as incredibly narrow minded rather than cosmopolitan. Now he says none of what we find in these two books of Von Mises is an argument for universalism. On the contrary, universalism is the hubris of our age. It's the mirage that the idea that humans have perfected a form of governments of governance, rather, social democracy, now it simply needs to be applied everywhere. And it is the unspoken heart of resistance to the soft secession we considered earlier. So many things we think are universal in practice are not. Human diversity of thought and action, not political or philosophical universalism, creates the foundation for the division of labor and cooperation across nations. Universalism is inherently collectivist and fails to comport with praxeology. So who decides what is universal in a world of individual human action? The state which is, or which God is the final arbiter? Which state or which God is the final arbiter? Von Mises said, the essential problem of all varieties of universalistic, collectivistic, and holistic social philosophy is, by what mark do I recognize the true law? the authentic apostle of God's word, and the legitimate authority. For many claim that providence has sent them, and each of these prophets preaches another gospel. For the faithful believer, there cannot be any doubt. He is fully confident that he has espoused the only true doctrine. But it is precisely the firmness of such beliefs that renders the antagonisms irreconcilable. End quote. Now, Jeff Deist says, I know what you're thinking. Ah, yes, but Mises was a utilitarian democrat. Didn't Rothbard come along and make the normative case for laissez-faire statelessness, but also for the universal application of the non-aggression principle and everything that flows from it? Well, Deist says, certainly we can agree that the corollaries of self-ownership, including just ownership of property, apply to all humans. But an awful lot of people, perhaps the majority of people on earth, would not accept our conception of property and self, even if we could properly explain it to each and every soul. This is a subject where Dr. Walter Block, for example, would strenuously disagree and chasten me. And Jeff Deist says, and we would love to have Rothbard's thoughts on the current situation, but would he object to 10,000 Liechtenstein's replacing the EU? Would he accept New York and California imposing authoritarian regimes in exchange for Florida and Alabama becoming largely unyoked from Washington, D.C.? Jeff Deist says, I think he would. So he says, I'll close with this. The pushback we are witnessing in America and across the West is directly proportional to the speed and ferocity with which progressives have advanced their agenda in the past five years. Reactionaries are reacting to something. It's not just in their heads. Trump had to happen. Brexit had to happen. It was never about Trump's policies or politics or personnel. It was about 70 million Americans willing to go off script and vote against Hillary Clinton, the embodiment of the deterministic progressive arc notion of history. Both Trump and Brexit were proto-secessionist events. American progressives essentially have been in a state of psychological coping and vengeance ever since. He says left progressives oppose the decentralization of political power for a very simple reason. They firmly believe they are winning. So why would they let anyone walk away? They will always portray breakaway movements as nativist, racist, or nationalistic. They can't help themselves. This is the white savior complex of today's progressive West. Thus, the way forward is to demonstrate enough resistance, hard, soft, and insufficient numbers, to make them question their own doctrine of inevitability. Even soft secession offers the left an opportunity to have more of what they want. The whole panoply of progressive policies right here and right now, but not everywhere. And he says it's an offer they should take and a bargain compared to real violence or civil war. Some people on the left in the U.S. are starting to get it. We don't vote our way out of this. We attempt to separate, to unyoke ourselves politically. Our old polarities of individual versus state and public versus private no longer provide satisfying answers to the questions of our day. And he says, like it or not, this will almost certainly require some kind of organic nationhood and probably some amount of geographic concentration to accomplish. Soft secession is how we begin. But the price to be paid by people of all ideological stripes is abandoning the naive dream of universalism. After all, what are covenant communities, if not an idealized conception of diversified private law, producing less conflict and more cooperation? I really like that. That is from Jeff Deist, The Prospects of Soft Secession in America. And I don't know why people get it in their heads that, uh, well, you know, to be a truly free country, everybody's got to think exactly alike. No, that sounds like uniformity. That sounds like the hallmark of a totalitarian regime. Speaking of totalitarians, let me give you a couple quick excerpts here from Barry Brownstein's latest article, Why Totalitarians Promote Hate. He uses the example of the uh, Lewis County General Hospital in upstate New York, where a bunch of health clinicians resigned rather than take the mandated COVID shot. Six of those who resigned worked in the maternity unit. So what did the hospital do? They shut down the maternity unit until new, new nurses who are vaccinated can be recruited. Other essential services may need to be curtailed as 73% of unvaccinated clinicians have yet to decide whether they will quit if, rather than be vaccinated and recruitment of new nurses won't be easy since thousands of job openings for nurses in upstate New York are unfilled. Now, as one democratic consultant called them, uh, are these unvaccinated nurses and other healthcare professionals the true enemy? Is it in the region served by the hospital, do families soon to experience the birth of a child feel safer now that some of their formerly trusted healthcare formerly trusted healthcare professionals have been purged? And are some of the patients wondering why these healthcare professionals would sacrifice their careers? Barry Brownstein says illiberal mandates violate bodily autonomy and arguably worsen health outcomes. So why are President Biden's advisors pushing them? Why do Biden and his advisors sincerely believe mandates will end the pandemic? He says James Harrigan well, explains well the logical absurdity of mandates. But he asked, are, are Biden and company consolidating power by exploiting human nature and borrowing a page from the totalitarian playbook to exacerbate tribal differences? He tells a story about Larry David, who is, I guess, uh, if you've watched Curb Your Enthusiasm, very popular show. He was one of the creators of the Seinfeld show. And he was close friends with Alan Dershowitz for 25 years until Alan Dershowitz became one of Trump's impeachment lawyers. And apparently back in August, there was an exchange that took place as Dershowitz was having a cup of coffee with friends on the porch of a Martha's Vineyard General store. And Larry David kept telling him, you're you're disgusting. I saw you put your arm around, you know, Mike Pompeo. And, And Dershowitz is like, we can still talk, Larry. No, 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 we can't really. I saw you. I saw you with your arm around Pompeo. It's disgusting. You, your whole enclave. It's disgusting. You're disgusting. But it wasn't a publicity stunt for the next season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Larry David is 74 years old, and like many of us, he still hasn't learned not to toss his psychological trash on the side of the road. That overwhelming sense of disgust that Larry feels for Alan is in Larry's mind. Angrily denouncing Alan won't solve Larry's problem. Larry can project the idea of disgust onto Alan, but the more he projects, the more he strengthens the idea of distrust in his mind. The more Larry projects, the more he wallows in his psychological trash. Now, from here, Barry Brownstein goes on to talk about social philosopher Eric Hoffer, who in his book, The True Believer, observed mass movements can rise and spread without a belief in God, but never without a belief in a devil. Usually, the strength of a mass movement is proportionate to the vividness and tangibility of its devil. This is a very powerful warning. Hoffer recounts it before the final solution when Hitler was asked whether he thought the Jew must be destroyed. He demurred. We should have to invent him. It is essential to have a tangible enemy, not merely an abstract one. Hoffer continued with the story of a Japanese mission that arrived in Berlin in 1932 to study the National Socialist Movement. Journalist Frederick Voigt asked a member of the mission what he thought of the movement and the visiting delegate replied, It is magnificent. I wish we could have something like it in Japan, only we can't because we haven't got any Jews. So Hoffer found it is perhaps true that the insight and shrewdness of the men who know how to set mass movement in motion or how to keep one going manifest themselves as much in knowing how to pick a worthy enemy as in knowing what doctrine to embrace and what program to adopt. So let's bring this home. How does that apply to you and me? We have to be careful that we're not the ones being persuaded to hate so that we start doing the bidding and the dirty work of totalitarians. And to this end, Barry Brownstein urges you to watch your fear response. Don't let someone hack your amygdala. Take back your projections or your sense of projecting, you know, what you don't like about other people, which is often a reflection of what you don't like about yourself. Don't intellectually bully people. There is no other way. All sensible people know and the like. He says, see the humanity in others, even if you disagree with them. Think about the person who, you know, the customer service rep who didn't solve your problem or the person who cut you off on the highway. Take care you're not turning them into it as opposed to recognizing them as a human being. He says, take responsibility, respect the extended order bottom line is this totalitarians reduce human cooperation so don't be a cheerleader for illiberal schemes cultivate your psychological freedom to be less susceptible to totalitarian propaganda because oxygen of capitalism is cooperation the oxygen for totalitarianism is hatred for differences I'm Brian Hyde filling in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network.